Radio. Conversations with Daniel Noor. Tackling the tough questions on cradio.org.au. Conversations with Daniel Noor is an edgy topical podcast. We feature an expert on a hot topic in society, speaking with myself. Every couple of weeks, you can tune in and get up to speed. So don't fake it. Know what Catholicism says about the stuff that matters. This is Conversations with Daniel Noor. The Catholic Church hates science, or so we've been told. And certainly the Catholic Church of the medieval era is generally a morbid and perverse institution. The monk from the Da Vinci Code, self-flagellation, piety, excess, and a depressing obsession with penance. This is our understanding of medieval Catholicism. Our topic today is science and medieval Catholicism or the medieval church, and we're honoured to have Professor James Franklin of the University of New South Wales. James teaches mathematics, he is interested in Thomistic philosophy, and the intellectual and especially the medieval intellectual history of the Catholic Church. James, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So, of course, there are a number of ongoing controversies, I think, that are associated with this principle of the church's resistance to science, a principle kind of blurrily found in a vague kind of mystical way in the medieval period. And that stem cell research controversy, the church's resistance to that, on some counts, the contraception that is uh, not encouraged in the third world, and even an indifference about the environment, especially for certain right-wing Catholic politicians in the United States, more specifically Republicans. Uh, although, you know, let's not name names, Uh, that is all somehow associated with the church's fundamental principle of resistance to science. Uh, This is where we're coming from, listeners. This is not a a new criticism levelled against the church. So let's go way back. Uh, James, if you could help maybe ground us, first of all, what period is medieval Catholicism uh, associated with? We guess we're looking at roughly the period 1000 to 1600, so the period of the great cathedrals that you can still visit in France and other places, uh, Dante, great writers like that, but before the time of people like uh, the early scientific uh, revolution of 1600, before Shakespeare. But yes. So we're talking several centuries. Yes. There are a number of... Uh of figures. It's, it's a huge period and a, a period of great renown, but also there's something of a darkness associated with it. What is the Dark Ages? The Dark Ages normally refers to the 500 years before that, say 1,500 to 1,000 AD. And they rightly called that in some ways. Civilization retreated a great deal after the Roman Empire and for the few churches you can see from that time uh, really not much more than piles of rubble. There was a sudden change for about the 12th century, 12, 1300 and uh, the time of the scholastics, the great cathedrals and that's what the later medieval civilization is what we normally think of as the great period, uh, the age of faith as they sometimes call it and it contrasts with the rather primitive 500 years earlier. Yes, and that primitive era, I think, is deemed to be a highly Catholic part of history. I mean, you know, even a cursory glance at any episode of uh, Monty Python, we'll see, you know, monks walking around kind of sullen and morbid and burning witches at the stake, a total kind of chaotic, primitive view 
of the world. And then there is this great renaissance, literally speaking, that is what it's called, but also a, a flourishing of, of the arts and of science. And that, on the other hand, is seen to be, if not anti-Catholic, then somehow removed from the Catholic Church. For some reason, we do not seem to think of Michelangelo, for example, as a Catholic gentleman, or we don't seem to, to see it as the purview of the Church. That whole period is not the responsibility, and certainly uh, not to be credited to the Church in any way. That happens to be the way we view things. Would that That's seem true. fair, James? Uh, there is that myth about, but of course everybody really knows that Michelangelo's works were paid for by the Catholic Church. And yes. That, uh, everybody we're talking about were Catholics, mostly, uh, as far as we know, sincere ones. Galileo and Copernicus, of course, were themselves Catholic, uh, rather sincere ones as far as we know. Now, Galileo is uh, an Italian, uh, I suppose, physicist. He's also a mathematician, an engineer, an, an astronomer, and a philosopher. He played a major role in the scientific uh, revolution or flourishing of the Renaissance. He is said to have made some very important contributions to science, and uh, he also lent support to Copernicanism. He's been called the father of modern observational astronomy, physics, science, and modern science. The uh, championing of heliocentrism, heliocentrism, which, I f if I'm not mistaken, uh, was uh, like a, a reconfiguration of the way that the cosmos works that you can tell us more about, was investigated by the Roman Inquisition in 1615, which concluded that this claim was false, contrary to scripture, and placed against or alongside the Copernican system in an index of banned books which forbade the the teaching, I suppose, altogether. What did Galileo claim? Who was the man and why was the Catholic Church so resistant? Galileo was one of the great geniuses of history, no doubt about that. You covered his achievements very well in astronomy, in mechanics. He was almost, uh, perhaps it's going a little bit too far to say that he was the founder of modern science by himself, but that's not too far from the truth. And he did, he was a, a man like uh, many geniuses, rather rough around the edges and got the wrong side of people. Uh, every, well, like many institutions, there's a tendency for everything to be run by idiots. And, uh, <laughs> uh, that will be the... the that will be the takeout quote, I think, for this podcast. Uh, okay, well, I've been in, lived in a university for a long time. Don't tell me about it. Uh, institution. No, I mean to say we will promote the podcast with, with the phrase, most institutions okay. are run by idiots, but carry on. The, the Pope of his time had actually been a friend of his earlier and was pro-science, but they managed to get the wrong side of each other, and he, with the help of the Inquisition, did condemn Galileo. Galileo didn't suffer a great deal from it. He was placed under house arrest and forced to deny his views. And that was undoubtedly, this is a very serious mistake on the part of the church uh, in its relations with science. It is rather a one-off kind of thing. There's, there's not much else that's much like it. And perhaps one of the most unfortunate things is that it took a long while for the church to dig itself out of that, admit it was wrong, and apologise. They have apologised fully about that at this stage. Yes, uh, a, a posthumous apology, yes, an apology right. nonetheless, yes. Not much use to him at the now, time. Now, why, why would the church need to make an apology? So, so first of all, what is heliocentrism? Yeah, heliocentrism says that 
the sun is the helios, the sun, centrism meaning at the centre. The sun is at the centre of the planetary system and the planets, including the Earth, move around it. So that was the view of Copernicus, his discovery, and before that it had been thought that the Earth was round but at the centre of the universe. There's a myth about that uh, in the Middle Ages people thought the Earth was flat, and that's uh, completely false. Just one of those many myths about the Middle Ages that you mentioned earlier. Yes. Uh, but it was geocentric, meaning that the, the, the theory was that the Earth, as you would think if you just go out there, it sits still and the planets and the sun move around it. The sun moves around it once every 24 hours. Yes. That's what it looks like. So but totally it, common, you know, a, a, a very well accepted, um, it would seem fundamental yeah, principle right. of, of, of any understanding of the what, cosmos. What could be more solid than the Earth you're standing on? But nevertheless, Copernicus with a lot of complicated geometrical reasoning, found that was false. And he himself didn't have any problem with the church, though partly, and, and his book didn't have any problem for some years after his death. But then some busybody theologians with a rather over-literal interpretation of scripture, which we wouldn't, which the church wouldn't agree with now, concluded that it was contrary to statements like in the book of Joshua, where it said that the sun stands still for a while to allow um, allow Joshua to win a battle. Yes. So uh, now we wouldn't we wouldn't think of that as as to be taken completely literally as a uh, as a statement about astronomy. But at the time, a, a biblical interpretation had moved into a rather over literal phase, and uh, the Inquisition decided uh, after some considerable thought about it that this was inconsistent with the Copernican heliocentric theory. I would be happy for you to bring in Copernicus, James, but that literal view of, of, of Scripture is not just... I mean, it may have since been kind of relegated to the past in most Catholic circles, I dare say, in all Catholic circles. Not so true of fundamentalist Protestantism. No, they have... Some, some of those fundamentalist Protestants, especially in the United States, have very literal views, and that's why they're against... Uh, evolution and the most extreme of them think that the world was still made 4,000 years ago in six days. Uh, just as an aside, James, do you feel that there is any legitimacy to the teaching of creationism in public schools? No, or in any other school either, because it's not a uh, theory supported by any evidence, theological or scientific. And you is it believe? neither theological nor scientific, you say? So as a Catholic scientist yourself, you find creationism to be, how would you describe it? Well, it's just a, a misunderstanding of scripture put over as an allegedly scientific theory. Now, the, now you, you mentioned Copernicus, and of course Copernicus actually preceded Galileo uh, by yeah. some years. 1545 to 63 is his uh, lifespan, and 1564 to 1642 was Galileo. So Copernicus and Galileo were kind of uh, both criticised, both in a way villainized. Is that fair? Yes, that's right. Not by everybody, especially scientifically trained people and many religious people as well didn't think it was the business of the church to get into astronomy. So Merzen, one of the early French scientists, said that the point of scripture was to tell us how to get to heaven, not how the heavens go. Even then, even in, in the period oh, yes. we're talking... Okay, well, see, this is a revelation to me because I would have thought that the Catholic Church possessed a monopoly on, on, on the arts, on science, 
on literature, even on the dissemination of books, you know, that any, I suppose that it was a totalitarian state. And that would not be the case, according to your view of things. No, no, it was, uh, there, was uh, there were restrictions, but they didn't uh, bear on people most of the time. If people kept their heads down and didn't talk about very, very controversial things. And normally science wasn't regarded as a matter of great controversy. Coper the Copernican theory for the first 50 years of its existence was just regarded as one of those complicated mathematical things that scientists talk about and not of concern to anyone else. But was yeah. science considered important? Was it led the great sanctity that it is revered with today? Perhaps not as much as today, but there was a great, uh, certainly encouraged by the church, there was a great spirit of uh, interest in intellectual things general, generally in scientific uh, things in particular. Remember that the universities themselves are one of, the, are an institution founded by the later Middle Ages, going back to about the 12th century, the first ones like Oxford, Cambridge and Paris, and they are the institutions that gave a kind of independence for th to some degree of the thinkers in them, as they still do. And they were all religious in their origins, all of those. So you're yeah, talking about Oxford e and everyone, Cambridge. Yeah, everyone. They were founded uh, with religious intent. They this trained, is surprising to me. Well, they, they were, as they are now, they're the, the institutions to train the intellectuals who run the place, including, yes. um, including uh, the church. They, the, the church got its personnel from the university trained uh, clerics. We call, we call them clerics, meaning clerks, meaning that uh, people who could, uh, were highly trained to read. Yes. Copernicus, Copernicus himself, can you believe it, was a doctor of canon law. You can't get more Catholic and medieval. It's true, that. and he was also a priest, was he not? Was Copernicus yes, uh, yes, not a priest? Yes. yes, well, I'm sure that would take many people by surprise. So Copernicus, uh, I'm told here, was uh, by the interwebs by the internet. Well, I'm told, uh, obtained a copy of De Revolutionobis in 1544, and, or rather, sorry, that this was one of his critics who, who obtained a copy of his work, of Copernicus's work, and denounced the writing a year later in 1545 uh, as, a, I suppose, a subversion of the truth of sacred scripture. What did Copernicus claim? Copernicus himself didn't say anything philosophical. He was a very mathematical person and he said that if you look very carefully at the ancient and modern observations of the planets, at that time done before telescopes, but there was still plenty, plenty to observe, you could see that the theory, that the heliocentric theory that the Earth went around the Sun fitted the data a lot better mm. and he'd left it at that. Mm. Right. So, we see here that there is a surprising coexistence, if not coexistence, perhaps even more than that, uh, an encouragement of scientific exploration by the Catholic Church. I don't mean to be soapboxy about it, but I mean, he was a Catholic priest after all. He was in the ranks of the Catholic Church and is revered today as one of the great uh, scientists. So, yes, that's right. He's studying what, at Catholic universities. Yes, yes. So what is the Church's policy on science? Is there is there such a thing? Well, in effect, there is. It's... Uh, the one you get from the St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 20, where it says his invis God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have, are always clear from what he has made. That was taken as a license to uh, regard the universe as intelligible and to regard looking into how it worked, 
defining its laws of nature, as, as tangentially said, was a, a, a work uh, of faith, mm. because you were looking at how God worked out in his universe. Yes. So the middle, the middle Ages are certainly known as a time of intellectual curiosity in some related areas. So take Marco Polo's voyages to China. There were, the stories of those were enormously popular in uh, Western Europe. And this is rather unusual for civilizations to be interested like that in what's going on outside themselves. Paper money in China, people were absolutely fascinated by yes. that. Yes, yes. Yes, what novel thought, paper, but now, of course, we have plastic money. And so, in a way, you know, here in Australia, we are already living in the future. So, so there is that. And, and that spirit of progress that you, that you mention here certainly is a, a, another revelation to me. Another revelation to me. Because I would have thought that at the best of times, at the best of times, we have a religious institution who makes it clear, which makes it clear rather, that science is not the job of religion, nor is religion the job of the scientist. And to the, to the I suppose, the, the great wave of criticism that has arisen, especially by the new atheists, as they're so-called, the Catholic Church has, in response, kind of hunkered down and relegated itself to its own jurisdiction saying to scientists, science is good for science, but science cannot answer the questions of religion. So is it fair to say that the church has a conservative spirit about scientific discoveries, a certain, a tr a certain sense of, uh, I suppose, tradition, or I think conservatism? Not exactly, in the sense that, uh, as you say, the, the Catholic Church approves of a kind of separation between the intellectual efforts of science and those of religion and says they're about different things. So science is not going to find you anything about ethics, for example, what's right and wrong. It's just not in that business. And you, would, and you claim this uh, as a mathematician and, and as a, a scientist yourself. Is that fair, James? Well, yes, that's right. Science needs to know what it can do and what it can't. And the pro part of the problem with the new atheists is that uh, they uh, go beyond that boundary in the try to talk about things they know little about. And actually, that was exactly the problem with the church and Galileo. The, the, the separation between religion and science broke down. Yes. So we, should, we should have learned from that, that science does one thing and religion does another. Maybe, maybe science has uh, some religious, uh, how is the word, off, uh, offspring in the sense that having understood how the world works, you might find that uh, you, you feel you better understand how God has run things. And actually that was Galileo's view. Galileo and some of his followers said that finding the moons of Jupiter, a, a kind of miniature a miniature solar system around Jupiter, such showed that the God's mechanism of the planet was yes. much more extraordinary yes. than you would have thought already. Yes, and yet, and yet nice science is about objective clinical discovery, an approach to data which is pure in its regimented, uh, I suppose, a strictness. Isn't that the most effective way of discovering new things that there is? Isn't it unfair to say that science simply cannot answer some questions? Well, if it can't answer questions about ethics, then it can't. That's, uh, that's a philosophical matter. It's a philosophical matter to discover where the limits of science lie. And scientists uh, tend to put their 
foot in their mouth when they talk about that because they're good at science but they don't know philosophy and where the limits of science lie. Are the new atheists parading themselves as philosophers? I'm afraid so. They are, there's the recent book by Stephen Hawking that says that philosophers have done philosophy very badly and he, the scientist, can do it a lot better for them. But the results don't, I think, bear out that theory. Yes. And James, on that note, we will have to end now. I thank you for your time um, and for this very interesting discussion. Thanks uh, for speaking. And listeners, I hope that you will have taken something away about the, I suppose, the categories, the boundaries, the restrictions to which certain fields of exploration seem to be bound or at least, you know, which, which challenge their claims. And also maybe learnt something new about the relationship between the medieval church and science. I know I have, um, but I certainly still have some, uh, I still have some discomfort with the, the role of the church as the vehicle for scientific discovery. I'm not sure that they're always compatible, but hey, that's just my opinion. James, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. And listeners, you can tune in to our next instalment in this three-part series on scary Catholics, science, philosophy, the Crusades, and all of those other kind of controversial talking points, and the medieval church. This is Conversations with Daniel North. You've been listening to an episode of Conversations with Daniel Noor. And for more episodes of Conversations, and for more talks, interviews, and shows, visit cradio.org.au.